how you manage to do it every time Hassan it's like every single yeah. time I give up on waiting for you and start the intro and then you show up like five seconds into the intro how do you do it because <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually doing something else and I time it to finish when you tell me that the show is going to stop oh oh so uh you know uh this guy his name's Nugla Nugla he's a YouTuber Nugla 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 let me share Right here, this guy. Let's have a look. <clears throat> Nugla. Yeah. Nugla. Daithi de Nugla. Well, apparently he's like in Pines with Aquinas's uh like comment section asking to like collaborate with Father Pine. Oof. Yeah, so that would be that'd be cool. I don't know. Somebody was just talking to me about it. What what else? There was something there was something I needed to what what is what is went on this week? It feels like we've had like two dry weeks when it comes to news. Well, Our holy have, father uh, had a fever. We have the uh, Sneeko with the video by Edith Stein. Oh, Edith Stein, yeah, and yeah, the, sne the whole Sneeko thing too. <laughs> that video, guys, guys, if if you want, if you want, like, if you want just a snapshot of what would happen if you continue your Discord formation, just watch the watch the Sneeko video. Where they're like debating Christianity and Islam. That that's how you guys are gonna be. Oh that's yeah, how you guys are yeah be. we did do that. If, if you <laughs> if you can if you continue uh reading the way you read, um and not being that's serious about be. your studies, that's how that's how you're gonna be. <laughs> but I've helped out with this. You know, you know how I've been talking about doing that Charles Copens thing? Yeah. This this is it. Look at this. This is a pretty pretty hefty book right here. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So what I did, uh, pretty big print. I mean, it's not illegible or anything. What I did is I took Father Cope, took through throughout Father Copen's works, and I brought them together into basically like a comprehensive introduction to philosophy and theology. It covers all of the tracts. Let me go to the table of contents, figure this baby out. Um tract gosh there's a lot of tracts tract one logic or well, dialectics tract two critical logic metaphysics cosmology psychology natural theology moral philosophy and then we get into theology divine revelation so that'd be de revelazione um and then ecclesiology and then on god on the trinity oh no on god is just one uh with trinity and um de de uno on creation, uh, on the incarnation and redemption, 
on grace, on the sacraments, on last things, and then on moral theology. So this covers this covers everything, everything. Uh, it's pretty it's it's simple enough for somebody who has read through their catechism, wants an introduction to specifically scholastic philosophy and theology. Um, and I put it all together into one um, one thing. So yeah, that should be uh, in the <clears throat> in the description below. It's like. 500 pages pretty big book and it's only like i, I think yeah, i put it up for like 29.99 um so yeah i tried to make it as close to print cost as possible but this is on lulu because amazon was trying to cry and i told them that they could go cry um because i will just print it somewhere else which ends up working out actually a bit better although printing costs are a little bit higher it's the only thing dude so so true so true we're supposed to read. I thought we just ping Hassan every time he's online. Why have you? You made my uh, Discord profile picture with the the, thing. <laughs> <laughs> the If you if you guys were wondering about the, I forgot to mention that. If you guys were wondering about the uh, the thumbnail, I'll, I'll pull it up real quick. Uh, I'll just, give you the the background and it's like, oh, what's dang, going on? Hassan? You, you <laughs> Hassan, bro, you got like. Got some uh, some stuff going on there. Okay, let's go to my channel right here. So if you're wondering what's going on with the uh, the the thirty right here, so that's Hassan's Discord picture. If you've never seen it, so earlier uh, this week, Hassan he messages me and he's like, "Hey, I've been having some uh, discussions with somebody on the issue of the flood and the extent of the flood, whether it's local or global." And I want you to read over like the discussion. And I was like, yeah, sure. You can send it. And then I go back on, on uh discord, like 10 minutes later. And I have 30 messages from Hassan. <laughs> I, I screenshotted I, it to you. You didn't want to rejoin the server. I could have just added you with this, the server itself. Oh yeah. So I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to actually make a point of discussing the, the catechism because along with, uh, this introduction that I was going to be telling you guys about from Father Copens, uh, obviously alongside that, it presupposes your reading of the catechism, whether at the same time or uh, sequentially. You read the catechism first and then uh, go for Father Copens. Um, so with the catechism, there's multiple different types of catechism. I'm going to put away that silliness for a second. So we have the modern catechism. Uh, which is the one by St. John Paul II, uh, headed by Cardinal Ratzinger, a.k.a. Pope Benedict XVI, in the 1990s. Was it 1992 or 1982? That it, I think it was 92 that it was released. Mm -hmm. um, so that is, that's the, the gold standard uh, right now for a catechist. That is the only, uh, the only, because the Roman catechism uh, wasn't like this. This is the only, like, properly universal um, catechism, which was promulgated by the church. Uh, so the, uh, the catechism, the current catechism of the Catholic church, um, that was meant to be received by bishops conferences and the bishops conferences, uh, like the USCCB, if you're an American, um, they were meant to adapt it to their local circumstances and local practices of catechesis. So some, uh, Eastern Catholic churches, such as the Ukrainian Catholics have their own catechism, although, uh, <laughs> With the local catechisms, you get some weirdness. Um, sometimes uh, we were talking about this, the Ukrainian 
uh, Catholic catechism actually has some weirdness. The USCCB catechism has some weirdness. So, uh, the USCCB one, mm. I guess it's not. I guess it's not weirdness. It's more like cringeness. Uh, it, it it's just they 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 try to push some like weird catechetical agendas um, that that just make it like a lot less useful than the original one. Um, so I guess I guess that's my my statement. Not saying like yeah, they have like grave errors or anything in there. Um, so with the current catechism of the Catholic Church, that that's basically the gold standard. Um, it's it is the, the the catechism which was signed off by all of the bishops of the world. It was produced by the Vatican, um, exactly. prob- probably produced by two saints, uh, but we don't know about Benedict XVI yet. So yeah, it, it's it's a great catechism. Um, it covers everything you need to cover. Um, and, and of this catechism, they created what's called the compendium of the of the catechism. So let me let me just pull that up real quick just to show you. Uh, this? compendium of the catechism of the Catholic church. So it's a bit, it's a bit shorter. Um, it's meant to be a synopsis. It's basically more so meant for uh, memorization and uh, such. But if you, um, if you want to use the compendium, I mean, you're basically going to get the same stuff. It's just with less explanatory uh, content, but I mean, it just provides you with the same material. So that's really, that's really the gold standard. So, you also have, um, in the history of catechesis, you have other catechisms that have been produced. Uh, no, the catechism of the Ca- uh, catechism of Trent was not universal uh, because um, Trent. So basically, what happened is Trent ordered the catechism, and then it was done. Um, it was, yeah, it was done. After, it was commissioned. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like if you were to say, uh, so you know the um, there was a synod. Of the church on catechesis right uh and that produced uh and then saint john paul ii responded with uh catechesi uh tradende which was a a, a post-synodal apostolic exhortation on catechesis and in the relatio finalis of that synod and in john paul ii's document he called for the the, the ccc to be made although they didn't know what it would look like at the time. They were calling for there to be some universal standard for catechisms, right? And saying that Trent, because because Trent called for the catechism of Trent, that therefore St. Charles Borromeo's uh, catechism is universal, is like saying that the CCC is universal because it was called for at the Universal Bishop Synod or by the Universal Pontiff. Mm-hmm. which which is not correct. The reason that the CCC is universal is because of the way it was put together. Um, I'm going to link in the chat. Uh, there is a really good text called the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church with Theological Commentary, which was put together officially with, with official approbation by the church um, with a bunch of different authors writing texts some of them have weird ideas, but they're not in the book, okay? Uh, by Archbishop Reno Fisichella, who is the, I believe he was the the um, president of the Pontifical Council for Catechesis, right? Mm-hmm. Or the New Evangelization, I can't remember. So here's the document. I've just posted a link to it in the chat. And at the beginning of that book, there's a series of essays about uh, about what this catechism is in the context of the history of the genre of catechisms, right? 
um, going all the way back to the early church with Gregory of Nice's great catechism, right? And then it comes all the way through and it shows you the medieval and post-Reformation catechisms and how they varied and how there were two or three different structures and how when the CCC was made, they looked back on this whole history in order to come up with an idea for the structure of catechesis, not just the content, which Christian will probably tell you is like just as important in a way, right? Mm -hmm. The order of treatment of the concepts and things like this was dealt with in a lot of detail by many theologians. And then the draft text was sent to all the bishops several times. And then they all sent back with their staff and with their theological advisors, with their priests, um, in-depth suggestions, corrections, additions, things like this, suggestions about changing the structure, adding more content. And then this went back to this group and then it went to the Vatican, the Vatican checked it over. And it has a lot of important features because for example, when the final text uh, almost found its way to John Paul II, he read it through in detail and he said, there needs to be more emphasis on the primacy of grace. And that then that was changed. And then it was promulgated. So you have this very like unprecedented action of the church, Comet Sub Petro, in the, the creation of the CCC, which is very important. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it has no problems, but it is um, like Christian said, it's the gold standard. It's one of its kind. Yeah, I, I really this is kind of what in what you'll get in some um, trad circles, which I would I would identify myself as broadly trad. Um, I, 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 I just don't like the term, but I use it for ease of communication. Um, what I what I don't like is this sort of uh, hatred for the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, because, I mean, the bishops, uh, <laughs> all of the bishops gave their basically stamp of approval on it. The pope gave a stamp of approval on it. The curia gave their stamp of approval on it. it it isn't something that can just be absolute garbage, uh, in content at least, uh, erroneous. I, I guess erroneous is the best word. I mean, you have the, the basically all of the bishops of the entire world uh, putting their their stamp on something. Like you should you should pay attention to that if you have any sort of serious uh, understanding of the teaching authority of the church. Um, it, it it's just it's just mind blowing to me that the the catechism of the Catholic Church just kind of gets ignored or uh or mocked in some way yeah i i do i do think that in some ways um the catechism is less efficient if you're going to use it for uh direct catechesis and that's why the compendium was made i think the compendium is a lot better um if you're going to have somebody reading it and then discussing it with somebody else um but again the the catechism of the catholic church was promulgated to bishops conferences um, so we, we can excuse some of the, uh, over, I guess, overindulgence, uh, because I think it's so, it's just so like massive. Where's my catechism? Uh, it's right here. It's just so, it's such a big, a big document. I mean, look at that. That's, it's like 800, 800 pages. Yeah. 884 pages. This is huge. Um, the compendium is like 200 pages. So yeah, if, if you guys, if you guys are interested and, um, and you're not like a really good reader. Uh, just read the read the compendium and make sure you read it slowly and read it well, um, because you're going to get the same content, um, just just not the same sort of explanation. Or, you know, um, there's the cross they cross reference, so you can 
if you have an issue or something or need more explanation, then you can go back to the CCC. But really, this this right here, this is the catechism of the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church. This is meant uh, for not only uh, this is really interesting. If you read the introduction, this isn't meant only for catechesis. This is also supposed to be the standard for ecumenical dialogue. So when you're discussing and this is actually something I like about um, Trent Horn, uh, I'll say something positive about him is whenever he's debating somebody on anything in uh, in Catholicism, he just says, let's go to the catechism, find what the church says in the catechism, and let's debate the thesis from this catechism, uh, because that's what it's meant for. Uh, if we have an issue, we go to the catechism, see what the church says on this, and then we can debate it from how the catechism will formulate it. Um, obviously, uh, it, we might need more clarification from other documents of the church, or from uh, the writings of the theologians. Um, but yeah, the, the catechism is, it just is the teaching of the church um, for catechesis. So it's its just mind boggling to me that some people can pretend like the formation of the catechism was somehow devoid of the guidance and protection of the Holy Spirit. Um, you can hold every single thing written in here with utmost safety. Uh, you have, when you're reading this, you ought to have no fear of falling into error just because from the from the nature of of what it is. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's that would be an ecclesiological problem when everything is based, just based on like, oh, well, the church is like really good. And that's why in the past there was no mistakes in the writings. And now it's not so good. And that's why there's less there's more problems. I mean, the church in terms of like the authorities and how good they were at formulating arguments and whatever this is not the case we have we have very important insightful documents promulgated by popes that were not so great and weren't theologians mm -hmm. yeah like every every protestant and orthodox should read the catechism before debating yeah this this should honestly be the the standard for everybody wanting to discuss anything about catholicism just read, I would, read the catechism i mean that's what I, I had to do before entering the church i don't know how you have all these people entering the church and they haven't read the catechism yeah I, I would say we, we need to add a bit more as well because there there's been a lot of hard work by the the uh, pontifical council for interreligious dialogue and also a lot of work by the uh, uh, by the pontifical council for Christian unity I think it's called these two organizations have done so much to get approbated documents out that tell us how we should be engaging when we talk to people of different religions and different sects. Uh, and yeah, there you have so many people who want to, who, who want who, who read a bunch of stuff and read about controversies and get into these things, but don't understand the etiquette that the church has set forth for dialogue with other people in our time. You cannot put together a praxis for talking to people in the current circumstances, which are so different from the past, based upon reading how the saints used to speak to heretics, based upon reading how the saints used to speak to the descendants of heretics, which are not the same category, by the way, right? Those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. um, so so uh, I really think that the catechism is not supposed to be seen as like, this is how you're going to arm yourself to mm. do polemics with other people on a solid basis. It's true that it has to be the solid basis, like Christian just said, working from Trent Horn. But you also have to know, uh, you also have to like know how to talk to people from from other groups. When when does the situation call for a little bit of harshness, a little bit of pushback, 
a little bit of defensiveness about things that they've said. And how are we supposed to behave aside from that? Where does the virtue of long suffering coming come into speaking to people from other groups? And if you don't have the patience to do it yet, just stop doing it for now, basically. This this is supposed to be something that takes particular virtues. Um, so that's that's what I'd say. I think I think there's way too many people around here who really like, you know, uh, arguing a lot. Yeah, we, um, some people are commenting on the RCIA and catechism thing, saying uh, they're given, no one's expected to reading it. And then Anthony said that yeah. he uh, he told the class to read it. Yeah, I, I guess I've I guess I've been in ordinary land for so long um, when it comes to this issue, because I I had a friend. Uh, he and I were received on the same exact day. For me, I got it easy. Uh, I uh, basically kind of talked to the priest. The priest was like, "Yeah, you 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 read your way in. You know a lot, but let's just make sure we we go through the catechism anyways to see if you have any issues, questions, and whatever." So um, there, there's four parts of the catechism. We scheduled out meetings like, I don't know, every like month and a half. So uh, in, in that span of like six weeks, because between the time that I decided uh, to convert and I got received, it was like six months. Um, so I, we, we read, we read uh, for six weeks the first part, my wife and I. Um, kind of talked about it and then went with that every question for like a Zoom meeting uh, because we were two hours away from each other. And we did this four times. So we ended up just in the span of like six-ish months just reading through the whole catechism. And I had a friend, the guy who got received on the same day, I asked him about his experience. I got out lucky because he also read his way into the church. Um, and he had he had like weekly meetings with his priest for like a year where he was reading and like discussing and having like the catechism, like directly explained to him. Uh, and he had to go through the entire catechism like that, uh, like a deep sort of study into the, into the catechism. And it, and it's just, uh, I've, I've had that sort of experience talking with anybody from the ordinary who was received is like, yeah, they expect you to read through the entire catechism and to be able to discuss it uh, before they're going to put the oil on your forehead. So, yeah, and then somebody was mentioning about the hat. They like the hat. Uh, where, nah, get so, one. Yeah, get one. Get one. Where is it? LaGrange cap looks cool. Yeah, and I got the mug as well. Honestly, it kind of goes hard. The hat, if he gets the hat canonized, well. they got to get rid of them. Wait, what What do you say? If he gets canonized, i got to get rid of it, though. I know, I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this is – I actually thought about this before making – I don't think this would be, like, profanation, I mean. Yeah, but it kind of reminds me of that the you know that that the dude in the server <laughs> he posted a picture with Saint Thomas icon knitted into the the sock like I, I think it's different. I mean, it's it's like a hat or or like a mug. I think that's different than a sock. The only issue I had with the sock was that it just goes on your feet, and I thought that was weird. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I don't know about having like uh you know pictures pictures of sacred things on every day. Everyday clothing, kind of weird. Well, it's just because you're Mohammedan. Yeah, I suppose so. Remember, <laughs> I, don't, I don't come from an, an aniconic tradition, even within Islam. Oh, really? There you go. Yeah, the Shiites use depictions. Okay. Yeah, and if you if you want a Lagrange hat, 
uh, or the Lagrange mug, then and and Hassan will make sure everybody throws them away when he's canonized, not if he's canonized. When he's canonized, you can go to the you can go to the link below. But yeah, uh, just uh, TLDR, read the Catechism because that's what you're supposed to be reading. That's what the Church says that you're supposed to be reading. Um, yeah, I was talking to, um, actually, I've heard this from multiple people, some of the theologians on Twitter that I've had DM conversations with. When I was asking how to go about, you know, what should I read and what order if I want to form myself and I can't go to a, a formal school for a long time. Uh, and they said, whatever you read, be always going back through the catechism and read a section a week, at least. Go mm -hmm. back through the catechism all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've always recommended people is whatever you're reading, you're never too good for the catechism. Never. Every single person should go back through the catechism a little bit every week. Because it's like, who, who was it? Was it Woodbury who said that? Yeah. 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 The, uh, the advanced in the in the Christian life will one day uh, come to recognize that the most profound truths of the Christian faith are found in their penny catechism, which penny catechism, somebody was mentioning it. That just means the the catechism for penny school, which is like pre-K. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you, you're never, you're never too good to, to read back through what you learned in pre-K. And Lagrange says something similar in three ages that one should also, one, one, the most profound truths are found in the first questions of the catechism. Which I don't know which catechism he was using at the time, but um, but yeah, uh, you're you're not you're not too good for the catechism, and uh, that's actually that's actually why uh, if if you something interesting I wanted to point out is when you look at the ordering of the catechism, uh, you basically have Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, uh, Lord's Prayer. Uh, th this is this is the same the same structure that you see uh, with Saint Thomas Aquinas's catechesis that he did um, back in the 13th century with his commentaries on the Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, and Ten Commandments, which we're doing with the New Aquinas Academy, actually, right now. Uh, we're reading through and discussing uh, those. So if you follow, the, there's a playlist uh, on uh, my channel if you want to listen to those discussions. Although I go on schizo rants uh, during those discussions, or you could just, like, read them. Um, but, yeah. So can anyone write a catechism, or can only priests? Well... The question any anybody can write anything they want. The question is like whether it actually means anything, um, because with with a with a catechism, a catechism basically is the the teaching of the church. The cat. This this is why this is why another reason why um, it just blows my mind that some people just ignore the the catechism of the Catholic Church. It's the catechism of a church is really the most the, the clearest way in which the church teaches theology uh, to um, to the entire uh, body of the faithful, uh, the catechism is that which is taught uh, to the to people upon entering the church or upon uh, gaining maturity. So, some of the most important teaching of the church is going to be presented in a catechism. So, uh, yeah, this is this is why you don't usually don't have like normies writing catechisms. It's usually like directly from bishops' conferences or directly from the Vatican. Um, so, yeah, cat catechisms they're they're very very important theological sources. It's the same way with manuals. That's why uh, we we say that manuals are so important. This is um, Monsignor Fenton's argument for the authority of the consensus of the manuals. Is what you have is the manuals 
were used as basically the catechisms of priests. That's what a manual is. It's a catechism for priests. Um, so when you have the church using her, her teaching uh, authority to promulgate uh, certain standards for priests, obviously uh, it, it's not going to be something which ought to be taken lightly. It's not going to be something that's unsafe for you to uh, hold to the positions. So uh, Hassan, Hassan is smirking at something. I don't know what he's smirking at. I just got tagged in our in our server. What is what is this about? What did I get tagged in? What are you tagging me in, Hassan? Oh, I wanted to. That was one of the things we could have talked about. Somebody made like a uh, like a fake like a, a fake uh, liturgical calendar day for the sake of uh, like making fun of St. Paul the Sexth. Oh gosh. Yeah, it's called in Lacrimazione Pauli Sixtus. Uh, oh, Mendel Mayo Sine Classe. You know, like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like nonsense without a class. That's like retarded. Yeah, and then there's like a reading from Bunyini, and it's it's puts like one Bunyini nineteen fifty five to fifty six. Like the you know the joke is that. You just replace everything with the, uh, you, you know, adding Benini to scripture and stuff like that. It's just, come on, bro. How how does somebody how does somebody care so much about liturgy and Latin that they have the skill to do this, but not care enough that they end up doing this? This isn't funny. This is this is just like really gross. Okay, let me. Let me actually start going through the questions. Okay, guys, today, today, I've I've made. If you if you uh, ask one, it just takes one dumb question. If you ask one dumb question, I'm timing you out for the rest of the stream. <coughs> you'll, Hassan, show, Hassan, you'll have to close your show if you do that. <laughs> Hassan can't take it anymore. Hassan's about to like go insane if he. If what he dumb questions? Dumb. I didn't see any. No, I said if you ask uh, one dumb question. Somebody's asking about uh, scholastic psychology. Uh, I haven't read about scholastic psychology in a while, so I'm going to have to pass on that one. Grenier has a treat, deals with this question of vegetative souls. I always thought that that was Yeah, I, uh, actually, there's an objection in Copens uh, completely based on uh, this objection. If I can find it, let me let me actually use the book that I have. Let's see if I can find this. Oh yeah, uh, this is this is. Uh, did, did I tell you that I'm reprinting a one volume of Grenier? That's going to be a lot cheaper than like the crappy three volume uh, scan version. I'm just yeah. Waiting. Is, are you talking about the um, the one that you sent me? The like the nice formatted one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how we did will... you make that? It's, it's much nicer than the other one we've seen. How did I make that? I don't know. Somebody yeah. else made it and they never printed it. Oh, are you serious? Why did mm. they never print it? I don't know, but I guess I'm about to find out. <laughs> you, you're gonna like the kind of stuff that you're putting out is like you know, like you could end up having like a seminary course just based on the stuff that you're putting together. I mean, that's kind of the point. I just want to print books that are useful. And there's another thing I'm printing called yeah. the Theology Library. I'm just I'm before the so I have my this is my proof copy. So before I actually like tell you guys about this. I, I want to make sure I get a proof copy to make sure I didn't screw up anything. Um, 
but yeah. Okay, I'm not gonna be able to find this while I'm on stream. Sorry, have you, man. Have you seen? Have you seen his? Uh, do you remember his syllogism poems for NEAs? Uh, that that was that was like a common uh poem. <laughs> it's, uh, his ones are funny though. His ones yeah. in particular are funny. Uh, oh yeah, I have my. Uh, you see that? I have a poster for categorical logic now because I because I, when I'm in the midst of writing or like debating, uh, I always forget the forms of the syllogism. And that has the valid forms of the syllogism on it. That's our friend Eamon, uh, his his website, Profide. They have some cool posters yeah. like that. So uh, one of them's on categorical logic. So, yeah, if you look up Profide, yeah, they have it. Um, have I read the book on American Catholic etiquette? Uh, no, I don't really. That sounds like 1950s weird stuff, not going to lie. American Catholic etiquette. Uh 1950s weird stuff. It sounds like up oh, originally published 1961. You were slightly off. It's on the Catholic archive. So what? What? Uh, I'm not really. I don't know how to put this about like not really being into like oh etiquette. This is like etiquette when it comes to the sacraments. Okay. 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 This is this is this makes a lot more sense. Yeah, this is like what you're supposed to do with like weddings and baptisms and funerals and confirmations and like what the what the sort of like proper um, behavior is for doing all of that. No dancing based. No dancing. Wait, wait. Page two fifteen. Let's see what this says about dancing. It's about to be. I hate dancing. I hate dancing. I hate dancing. Two fifteen. Um, Hassan, go on your dancing rant. What dancing? Uh, what the? What does it talk about? What does the book say? Oh no, it's it's not. It's not saying that you shouldn't dance. Dang it! It's talking about whether you have dancing or not. What you're supposed to do if you have no dancing. Dang, okay. that's crazy. Well, the the most important thing is that. It was specifically two uh, American parishes that the Vatican wrote that document in the, in the 1930s, saying not to dance. Uh, so true. Saying, saying that saying that parishes uh, are not allowed to have parish events that include dancing, for example. Mm. Somebody tell the ICKSP that. Okay, so what do you think of scriptural criticism? The moment I'm convinced of the existence of God via Plotinus view. However, I'm struggling to continue believing in Christianity due to more recent. Shh. What do you mean, uh, biblical criticism? Are you talking about like textual criticism? Or are you talking about like, uh, so so we can we can speak of biblical criticism in two different ways. So in the first way, you can speak of it like we are trying to uh, somehow reconstruct uh, the autographs, the autographs. So there's two different types of documents. There's the apographs. Apographs are those copies made from the originals, and there's autographs. Autographs just means the original copy. So from the apographs, like if I like if I like hand copy the entirety of this book by Copens, his uh, comprehensive introduction to philosophy and theology, which everybody should get. If uh, if I copy that by hand, that is going to be an apograph of the original. So by looking at my copy, you can find out what the original says. Now, let's say there's like 30 of us who copy it and you look through all the copies and there's some discrepancies. Some people might have gotten tired and like made mistakes. 
Uh, there's certain er errors where people will like skip lines and stuff like that. It's, it's just that's how uh, that's how copying just works. Uh, that's just how it happens. So what happens is we go through the various different copies by what are called the rules of textual criticism. I studied textual criticism in undergrad. It's really, really cool stuff. Um, if you get like a what's called an NA28, you can look at all of the uh, like different manuscript families. They're, they're just minor differences. I think it's something like 90% of the differences are literally just uh, whether the article is there or not. <laughs> because Greek, it's like uh, Greek is very changeable with the article like the or a. Um, so, yeah, it's like 90 percent of the differences are that. And then like 8 percent are like weird spelling errors. Uh, no, no. 90 percent of the movable, the movable new. It's called the movable new. So at the end of certain verbs, you can have a new or not. Um, and and usually because these were verbal. Uh, so you'd have like a group of scribes and the guy would be speaking and he would be reading the text and the scribes would be copying it because it was verbal. They didn't know whether the movable knew or was there or not. So they would just kind of make it up. So when you see these big, like there are 3000 like different or 10,000 different uh, changes in the new Testament or errors in the new Testament or whatever. Um, literally 90% of it is just some dude like spelling a word differently. And then like something like eight or 9% is just like, the article or misspelling or like uh, something like that. And then like the rest is literally either non-substantial changes. Like there, there's no, there's no differences that are substantial enough to change the doctrine of the text. Um, like the, all, all of like the Bart Ehrman textual criticism stuff is just literal garbage. It's made up. It's fake. Um, if you have anybody who's, who's like studied it and is honest, like Bart Ehrman has studied it, but he's not honest. If you have somebody who studied it and is honest, he, they they will tell you like yeah we we know what the what was written by the apostles it's obvious we have we have tech we have like tens of thousands of manuscripts in uh like a dozen different languages from everywhere from India to uh, Britain and <laughs> these texts are saying the same thing except with minor like spelling differences that we would that we would expect from from such a text. So it would it would just be ridiculous to say that we don't know what the original uh, says, and that that and we just believe in the providence of God and preserving the the text of sacred scripture. Now, in the second way, you can talk about criticism of like saying that the 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 canon was somehow corrupted, or that there was like stuff which was made up, or there was stuff which was redacted. Uh, when, when we go to the New Testament, because New Testament uh, textual criticism is is more of my uh, expertise, I guess. Um, we, we just we just know from the early quotations of the church fathers, the statements that they make. These guys are pretty spread out. The manuscript tradition, how wide the manuscript tradition was. We we just we just know that it's it's something which were was from um, from the apostles. It isn't like question. Uh, you can't question it without just falling into. Uh, ridiculousness so yeah um you, you you get these like wide claims from like discord dudes or like mu muslims will do this all the time it's just it's annoying uh they they don't i can assure you right now they don't know what they're talking about they absolutely have no idea they've never studied textual criticism um like if you if you talk to any muslim and you start asking them basic questions about like how we even get texts ancient texts and how we know what ancient texts say and how manuscript traditions work, even with their own holy works, they, they'll have no idea. And there's no critical editions of their works. 
Um, it's literally purely traditional texts, which is which is disastrous, actually, uh, when you don't have critical editions of works uh, with these notes telling you where the different um, the, the differences are between the manuscript streams. Uh, it, it's utterly disastrous. So, yeah, we actually it's something interesting is um, uh, what is the what is the work done? So there's there's basically what they did is they made this uh, machine learning software. So basically AI um, and they trained it on uh, like how basically how uh, manuscript traditions work. And then they put through all of the manuscripts that we have for the New Testament, um, which it, like the exhaustive like documents are insane. Like the book of James, I think alone has like an entire volume just of all of this stuff with ex with exhaustive um critical notes and they and they get the machine learning software to go through the entire thing and to uh and to find out uh and, and tell what is the most likely uh what is the most likely reading which basically is just going to put textual criticism as a discipline to an end a um, manual textual criticism because you can just every time you find new manuscripts you just load it up in the uh, machine uh, say the manuscript family say the say the the era it's from uh, it's going to be able to detect the differences and it's going to be able to weigh the options for you and tell you with what certainty we know this is that and, and so on so yeah that that's my that's my long rant about textual criticism which nobody cares about uh, but everybody think is thinks is kind of cool okay somebody's asking about uh the whole thing with the microparticles from the eucharist Do you remember this, Hassan? No, I don't remember where we covered it. Maybe, um, maybe your wife has clipped it somewhere, but I don't know. Yeah, basically, basically, what happened is <clears throat> we, somebody asked about microparticles, like why, like because I, I think I've never uh, in my Catholic life, and I will never, uh, God willing, uh, receive on the hand. Um, it's just, just uh, may maybe it's just my weakness, uh, or or maybe it's a misguided personal piety. But I just I just don't want to. Um, but I, I will say that there is um, intrinsically no issue with it. And my my reasoning was is somebody somebody commented like, oh, but microparticles, and I said, well, actually, microparticles uh, aren't the body of Christ um, because they've lost the form of the sacrament. In the same way, when you eat the Eucharist and it digests in your stomach. It isn't like the body of Christ going through your digestive tract because the, the, the form of the sacrament, the bread is, is destroyed and substantially changed into something else. Uh, so it no longer is the, is the sacrament. So that, that basically was the whole thing. And then some people were upset about it because they were told differently. Um, but yeah. Uh, okay, so where do those such as uh, Gilson err in criticizing the Neotomists and Cajetan in their understanding of essay? Yeah, so basically, um, to to give like a brief uh, brief history, uh, I, I like using the example of Febro better because I don't think Gilson was Gilson was more of a historian, <clears throat> where Febro was actually a philosopher writing about this stuff. So basically. You have you have the confusion is surrounding the type of language which was used during the time of the early um, 
early Reformation era around uh, like Cajetan, because he would discuss these issues with like Scotists and he would use the common language of the time in describing uh, essay. He would, he would use like um, existentia, uh, which is not liked. Um, so it, it just has to do with certain linguistic issues. If you actually read um, their discussion of this, like, uh, and try to seek actually what they're saying, rather than just looking at the terminology which they're using, it's very clear they're just following what St. Thomas uh, is saying. So like, when you when you read somebody like Fabreau, uh, Cornelio Fabreau, um, if you want like a really short introduction, his, his essay in the new, the new Catholic encyclopedia, um, I think it's on, it's just on existence is the, which is kind of ironic considering he didn't like the term existence. <laughs> he preferred actus ascendi. Um, so I, I think it's the article on existence. If you look there, it's, it's a, it's an encyclopedia article, but it's pretty deep. Uh, read those guys, uh, believe what they're, believe what they're teaching. It's really good stuff. Just don't, um, believe what they, uh, <laughs> don't believe what they say about history. Uh, so there's a good article on this. I'm going to see if I can find it just quickly. I know somebody sent it to me on a on a server. Oh man, there's going to be like a thousand uses of Cajetan in the server, isn't there? Um, gosh, there is like a thousand uses of Cajetan. Um, oh, I know, I know who sent it, so I can just search. Sorry if this is. Uh, is he not in the server anymore? Oh, no, I remember. Okay. Then he mentions Cajetan. Yep, it's called Cajetan's Notion of Existence. Uh, let me see who it's by. Oh, it doesn't say who it's by. Dang. Yeah, it's just called Cajetan's Notion of Existence. Uh, I don't know what the book is called, though. This is kind of weird. Let me see if I can like fucking like. Okay, so it's from two thousand and fifty. Oh, the ebook's one hundred fifty-four dollars. Good luck, guys. Um, it's just called Cajetan's Notions of Existence. It's by John P. Relly. Relly. I'm just gonna send the the Google Books link real quick. Yeah, so if, if you're interested in that, yeah, Gilson, he was just annoying. Okay, what happened? What happened to the commission of the Lagrange icon? One one day I will I will uh I will actually get the Lagrange icon um commissioned. I, I want to uh, Hassan's laughing at me right now. I internally internally laughing at me. Mm. Uh, I want to get a Lagrange icon commissioned. Not like icon, obviously, in like the Eastern style. That would be dumb. But like, you know, like a um like a neo baroque get a neo broke artist to write like um like an actual like something like like the apotheosis of, of Saint Thomas, like an art tradition, not like something dumb like a, like an Eastern style icon of Thomas. The capture of the dreaded Hassan stare on it. Maybe, maybe if he's, uh, maybe if Lagrange is canonized, we'll have to replace that with Hassan. 
It's just going to say R&R on it. R&R, yeah. So uh, the Orthodox don't have a catechism. It's comprehensive. True, true. Okay, so um, do I pour milk or cereal in first? That's a good question. I don't really eat cereal, so I don't know. Hassan, how about you? I don't eat cereal anymore. I did when I was a kid. Yeah, do do any adults out there just like sit down and just grab a massive bowl of cereal? Okay, so religious education for ch for children. Hassan, go. Oh, I know. Religious. What do you suggest for religious education for children? We've talked about this a lot, but I honestly, if if I'm on the spot and I'm being told, put something together now. I don't. I don't think I could do it. Yeah, because I don't think I don't think the church has ever um, come out with. Well, there there isn't like a children's version of our of the Catechism of the Catholic. No, church. we have the UCAT, but I think children's catechesis. If I was going to wing it, I would say that you should look at how Scripture deals with it. There's several places in Scripture where it says. And when your son asks you about these things, tell him. And then you say, this is because the Lord brought us out of Egypt, etc. Right. So I think what you should do is you should do things which are occasions for inquisitiveness. Right. And then when they ask you, then you answer. And by doing that, you foster a healthy growth of appetite for learning more so that they look forward to when they're old enough for you to teach them more systematically. You should you should tell them I'm going to teach you a lot more about this soon, like and make yeah, it something I, they have an appetite for. Due due to the nature of of children, I feel like a lot of it is just um, the memorization of of our prayers, and also it's going to be um, memorization of prayers. There's a, oh yeah, the the routine of prayer as well, um of morning midday evening prayer or morning evening depending on how your how your schedule uh happens to work um yeah it, it's it's really just the routine of prayer and then the memorization of prayers i mean that's like uh where do i have it um so there's in this volume uh tradivo tradivo box tradivox sophia institute press they actually have like basically a kids catechism here and a godly a godly instruction for the and information for the training and bringing up of children set forward by the bishop of london commanding all school masters and other teachers of youth within his diocese that they neither learn teach or read or use any other manner of abc catechism or rudiments than this one made for the first instruction of youth that's a pretty long title um it's 1556 um and it's the ABC Catechism. So here, here are the things that are treated in there, uh, which which is, I think, in line with uh, what I was saying. So they have the manner of blessing. So um, it, it's the, the it's like a few ejaculatory prayers. The Lord's Prayer, just memorizing it. The, the Ave, the Creed, certain prayers at Mass, um, grace before dinner, grace after dinner, uh, Grace before supper, grace after supper. Remember, uh, for them, dinner was lunch and supper was dinner. Uh, how to pray for the dead, 
Um, this is a certain part of uh, Psalm, what is that? Psalm 35, I think. Um, and then the Ten Commandments, the Two Commandments, the Gospel, the Seven Virtues, Seven Works of Mercy Bodily, the Seven Works of Mercy, ghost, mercy Ghostly, the Seven Gifts of the Holy Ghost, the Beatitudes, the Seven Sacraments, the Seven Deadly Sins. It's, li it's literally... Um, it's literally just memorize all of the important beginning stuff for now. That that's what it is at, at that stage. There's another one, a Catechism of Christian Doctrine from 1583, um, and it's basically uh, a similar thing, although it's explanatory. So this would be like how we would view our like middle school catechism, where it's just explaining those things. Um, but you can, I mean, if you're if you're teaching RCIA, you could probably just explain them yourselves. Uh, so yeah, that that's at that age. Uh, I, I think memorization is is that which is important. Okay, so what's what's the worst misconception about Protestantism that you hear from pop apologetics that you get tired of hearing? Um, that Henry. Uh, was was horny and he therefore broke off from the pope that's when i get really uh tired of hearing about and you know why it's not because i like henry i i think henry was a degenerate um i really do think henry was a degenerate i think he was a terrible king um and i don't think uh, he's in a good place right now um but the reason why is because there are like centuries of medieval history medieval context for what happened with the uh the english reformation that can help us understand um sort of the distinctives of the catholic faith where we remained um strong where nobody else did um and this really has to do with the relationship between the authority of the king um and the authority of the pope so if you don't know who marcellus of padua is you shouldn't be talking about the English Reformation at all, because if you don't understand Marcellus of Padua, uh, then you just don't understand why the Reformation happened. If you don't understand what happened with Henry II, you don't understand the English Reformation. This was something which went on for centuries before Henry. It was literally just who was going to be the guy who who kind of pulled the lever. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's one of that's that's one of the points that uh, really annoy me. Okay, so how much of the Old Testament should be read allegorically and what parts must be read historically? All parts must be read allegorically and all parts must be read historically. Okay, let's continue. I'm just, I'm just messing with you. Yeah, so basically uh, when it comes this – is, this is like a common misunderstanding. Now you have to um, nuance it, bro. I, I do have to nuance it because yeah, – that, that was okay. the scared then. Okay, so basically what you have um, – I'm just going to open up a Word doc just so I can type these terms for you guys. I know you guys are going to forget. Um, let me open up. Actually, a Google Doc, not a Word Doc. Let me open up the document. Let me share my screen. So, uh, okay, here we go. So basically, what, what you have is you have the literal sense. And you have the, uh, I'll just put uh, spiritual sense. But what the literal sense is, is the literal sense is that which the words signify 
that which the words signify. But this can be done, in, you can signify with words in two ways. So the first, you can signify properly. And second, you can signify improperly. So properly just means uh, without idiom. So for example, if I said, uh, my dog is missing. Dog is used in the ordinary sense um, of dog. And on the other hand, uh, you can use with idiom. So with idiom just means like um, it is raining cats and dogs. So most people, they think the improper literal sense here, uh, the use of idiom or the use of literary form, that that is somehow the spiritual or allegorical sense. So, for example, uh, with one of our Lord's parables, he's telling a parable about a man who did this or that. The literal sense is to read it as a parable. It's just he's using the improper literal sense because he's not using it in accordance with the ordinary, natural, normal uh, use of the terms. Or, for example, Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 has to be read literally. It's just the question of what kind of literary form is being used. Is it the form of a allegory? Is it the form of a um, normal history as we think of history? Is it like some sort of Israelite history? What what is the what is the form which is being used? So that's the difference. Or this is uh, this is actually technically called by Aquinas uh, the parabolic uh, sense. And there's a there's a good quote uh, which I want to bring up from Aquinas. Um, this is. Summa Theologiae, uh, Article 1, uh, Question 1, Article 10. I think it's the response to the third objection. Yeah, it's response to the third objection. So I'm just going to copy and paste that baby in there. Okay, so uh, what Aquinas says right here about the parabolic sense. Uh, the parabolic sense is contained in the literal. For by, I'm just going to bold that. Contained in the literal. For by words, things are signified properly and figuratively. Nor is the figure itself, but that which is figured, the literal sense. Hence, so this is important. Hence, when scripture speaks of God's arm, the literal sense is not that God has such a member, but only what is signified by this member, namely operative power. Hence, it is plain that nothing false can ever underlie the literal sense of holy writ. So the literal sense can never be false. It's always literally true. It's always the words are signifying that which is true. But when we speak, we use different forms of, of speech. Uh, for example, if I speak of God's arm, God's right arm, or if I speak of God as a stone, I'm I take these terms literally. I don't take them properly. So that's the difference. I take God as a rock. I take that literally. I don't take it properly. I take it improperly as some sort of figure or idiom that's being used. Now, on the other hand, we have something completely different here with the spiritual senses. So the spiritual senses, they are the things signified by the literal sense. So notice this is based on the literal sense. You're already drawing forth the literal sense. The things signified by the literal sense themselves become signs. So the things that signified by the literal sense themselves become signs. So you have, uh, for example, uh, let there be light. Let there be light. What is the literal sense of let there be light? That certain light is coming into being. Now, when we consider the nature of that coming into being, so notice we have the we have the words right here. The words have signs are signs of certain things. Then the thing itself, light coming into being, that itself can be a sign of, uh, for example, in the anagogical sense, the the light of the beatific vision coming into being. 
we can we can think about uh, th that which is signified by the words themselves becoming signs, or we can look at the Paschal Lamb. So we see um, the the Old Testament describes the Paschal Lamb. We have the words describing the Paschal Lamb. We have the Paschal Lamb itself, and the Paschal Lamb, the thing itself, itself becomes a sign. So God can we can only signify directly like that. We can only signify with a literal sense. We cannot signify uh, no other document. Uh, can signify with anything besides the literal sense. We signify with the literal sense, but God, uh, because God can not only make word sign, God word signs, but God, since He is the creator of things, can make things themselves signs of greater reality. So this can be either a um, this can be the allegorical, which is a, a sign of a thing of faith uh, from the law. It can be uh, anagogical, which is a Sign of glory, uh, sorry, sign of glory uh, from the gospel, or it actually could be any part of scripture. And then we have the moral, which is the uh, sign of a thing to do. Uh, insofar as Christ, our head is, is uh, reflected. So do not, do not get, do not get this mixed up. Do not absolutely do not get this mixed up because this is, so important for your reading of sacred scripture and almost nobody out there ever gets this right nobody even even like professional theologians they just absolutely brutalize this and are not careful with what language they use which is why uh which is why we fall into these various errors um so yeah that that's my that's my schizophrenia anything to add hassan or do you think that was good yeah, there's a section in um, St. Thomas's commentary on Galatians. Did you mention that? Yeah, Galatians chapter 4, I think it's the second lecture. Uh, that's the best mm. the best explanation. I think of... it's I think it's lecture 7. 4 lecture 7. Yeah, oh. yeah it is. I think I think this is actually the best catechetical text on on the four senses to start with. I'm yeah, going to post so... it in the chat. Are you going to post the Isidore link? Yeah. Okay. That yeah. So Aquinas.cc link. Uh, well, it just as a note, Aquinas.cc uh, doesn't work on your phone, so you have to be on your computer. If uh, if you do go on your phone, you have to scroll to the right. If you scroll to the right, you can see the English. If you go on your phone and you don't scroll to the right, you're just going to see a block of Latin. Okay. I just I just got the Galatians. If you need it. Okay. So yeah, definitely. If you're interested in this topic. Uh, this is the best, the absolute um, best explanation ever. Uh, I had I had a professor when I was learning about the sense of scripture, and he just lectured off of this text. It was great. But yeah, that that's what we mean. Every every single thing in scripture should be read literally. Everything in scripture should be let, read allegorically. Every single last thing. Yeah, the the four senses apply to every single passage, uh, but when it comes to like. If you're talking about the literary form of the different books of the Old Testament, there may be certain books that were not intended to be read as historical texts, but they all have some kind of uh, the, the literal sense of those texts is going to come into like, well, who was writing for whom? What was the intent of his writing? And this is where the Divisio Textus is going to come in from people like St. Thomas and other scholastics, mm. where they're going to tell you, well, what was this person trying to accomplish from his writing that we can tell from the structure of the text, right? We can actually tell what his principal end was in writing the text from the text itself in a certain way, right? Uh, and St. Thomas is great at that. 
uh, when you and when you do this and you look at the original context as much as we can figure it out uh, you can figure out like okay well if this text isn't supposed to be a historical narration like many say about Tobit and Judith or if they are supposed to be historical but they are veiled with thematic alterations of names for example uh, some say that Judith is historical, but the characters and the place names have been changed in order to fit more clearly a, a direction to the allegorical sense, right? Or at least to shroud, to shroud the text in, a meta in metaphorical names in order to show you what the importance of the story is, right? Uh, this, this can happen in many cases. Uh, so in, so in a, a lot of, many parts of the texts, uh, you're going to have texts that are not strictly historical in the the, the fundamentalist sense, because the, the fundamentalist sense is going to be the idea that there are no senses other than the literal, and that the literal sense is the plain sense. But often the plain sense is not the literal sense. The plain sense is like when you read it and it says, well, then a snake appeared and then they ate an apple. That might be true, but it, these words snake and apple may signify things that actually happened by different names but by a polyvalent symbol that is the most efficacious for teaching us the meaning of the events as they transpired so uh that so that's that's basically how, how you have to remember that the text is is always literal and is uh but is also not always supposed to be understood in the plain sense yeah so uh so Petrie and Barber are absolutely wrong. Paul means all of the all works. He means all works. Uh, check out St. Thomas uh, for this. His commentary on Romans, just read the whole thing. And his commentary on Galatians, read the whole thing. Actually, just read every single one of his commentaries if you want to know more about this. Yeah, modern, modern Catholic theologians are just wrong when they say that um, uh, St. Paul is talking about ceremonial works. Hey, who's the greatest Catholic theologian today? Uh, Hassan and I actually, I think we're talking about this the other day. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's Father Thomas Joseph White. There's too many, there's too many authors that haven't got anything in English, so I can't comment. Oh, oh yeah, I guess that's true. I guess we would need to ask like Gabriella. I'm sure she can find some like insane, um, like Spanish Thomas who's like still off at some random monastery, he's still writing commentaries on the Summa in the traditional method. Method. No question. Based. Based, Anthony. Oh, yeah. Father Ripperger's book's pretty good on the Church Fathers and Theologians. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Aiken's completely and utterly wrong, and it's actually really bad that he says what he says. Okay. The comment is hiding the notes. Uh, will I ever have Father Ripperger on stream? I don't know. Father Ripperger has never uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, Wagner, I want to be on one of your streams. Would I? Probably. Hey, Hassan, good question. Uh, thoughts on the quality of Cornelius Alapide as a commentator? This is uh, our friend Elliot, by the way. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. 
I think Lapidate is like one of the greatest commentators, at least that I know of. Uh, extremely thorough. Yeah, he's he's the best. Really, you think he's the best? He's the best. No, obviously, I think St. Thomas is the best, but yeah, but in terms of works that we have today, in total, Lapidate like he commentated on almost the whole of Scripture, right? And then some some of uh -huh. it is cut in from Dennis Carthusian, but mm. most of, he commentated on most of Scripture. Mm. I know that's that's uh, something I eventually want to do is just read the entire Bible alongside Dennis the Carthusian because he has commentaries on the entire Bible. That would be fantastic. Okay, so uh, do you think the Reformed theologians had anything helpful to offer except forcing Catholic theologians to write brilliant works? Uh, yes, uh, although because it's, it's hard to answer this question um, because I would say that their emphasis on positive theology uh and its relationship to scholastic theology but even then catholic theologians during the time were doing the same exact thing uh they were starting to re-emphasize positive theology um and and then may, maybe like the devotional aspect but i mean you already have like the theology of the heart and mind by Contenson. so it's it's hard it's hard to say that like the reformed theologians were doing anything original it, the, so the way to think about the Reformed theologians of the Reformed scholastic era is they are basically a bunch of like eclectics, as we would think of like certain eclectics within our schools. That's how they saw themselves is like broadly Catholic eclectics with a very strong, um, a very, a very precise, I guess you could say, uh, confessional uh, structure. Because we, we don't, we often don't think about this, but actually when you look at the confessional structure of um, the Reformed, it was a lot more narrow than the confessional structure of the Catholics um, on on very many important issues like predestination, uh, grace, the the vow points, which I was telling Hassan about. Uh, that Honestly, that was the dumbest thing ever. Like, come on, guys. Uh, I, I'm, I'm about to go on a rant. Uh, but uh, if you don't if you don't know how Hebrew works, I took three years of Hebrew, uh, so I barely know anything. Um, that's just how Hebrew works. You need to spend like forever studying it to know anything. Um, but just as in our language, we have vowels and consonants. So if I spell Hassan, uh, A and A, there, those are the, those are the, the vowels of, of the word Hassan and the rest are consonants. So in Hebrew originally, and for a very long time, they had no vowels. They just had consonants. So if like, I wanted to spell Hassan, it'd just be H S N. And people would just kind of like assume, and they would kind of like in, in their minds, just put in the vowels. They would pronounce the vowels, so the vowels were original, but they just wouldn't put them in the in the text. So it's it's like that actually. If you look at like a modern uh, newspaper, uh, is Hassan cutting out or am I cutting out? Oh no! No, I hope I'm not neither. cutting out. Oh, I'm good. Oh, neither. Yeah. Oh, you just cut out for yeah, me. Yeah, it's fine. Um, so so if you read like a modern uh, Israeli uh, newspaper, let's say. And you, and you look through it, there, there's no vowel points uh, at all. So what this group uh, called the the Masorites, is it, is it Masorites, I think? Or Masorites, Masorites, Masorites. I think it might be Masorites. But they, they, they produce what's called the Masoretic uh, text, which they slowly over time, as you had more and more people just lose the ability to uh, read Hebrew really well um, outside of certain figures, 
what you had is they needed to add in these vowel points so people would know how to pronounce the words. So they added in all of these these vowel points, which are extraneous to the letters. Like if you look at Hebrew, you have these like main letters, then you kind of have like points everywhere. Yeah, those are the vowel points to, to let you know how to pronounce the words. Um, so the Reformed, it's it's like hilarious. The Reformed thought that these like post post apostolic Jews were somehow led by the Holy Spirit to infallibly like place the vowel points in Scripture. It's ridiculous. So they, they think that some random Jews in like the 11th century are more infallible than the Pope. They want to make make fun of us for it. It's like the most ridiculous notion. You had, you had people like condemning each other. These were putting co confessional documents. This isn't like anything like crazy and out of the ordinary. They, they, they literally took the same exact. This is like, like what's so ridiculous to me. They took the same exact argument for the authenticity of the Vulgate. And they put it for, for the authenticity of the Masoretic text, which wasn't even used by Christians. They were used yeah. by Jews. And they were saying, oh, the Holy Pretty Spirit, funny. the Holy Spirit couldn't have let the text of the Hebrew Bible fall out of dis, fall into disrepute. It's like, okay, you think the entire Western church didn't have an authentic text for a thousand years after the time of Jerome? And, and you and you make fun of us for believing that, but you believe that these random Jews somehow had like had, had the guidance of the Holy Spirit and putting the vowel points on. Are you serious, dude? It's like it's utterly ridiculous. Um, it's like one of the dumbest, honest, like all due respect, one of the dumbest, uh, dumbest like beliefs I think I've ever read. The, the Catholic Church actually to this day hasn't officially authenticated the Mas Masoretic text as one of her authentic texts. Right now we have the Vulgate and the LXX have both had the the same approbation, but never the never the Masoretic text. Okay, so I know. Um, okay, I have another question that I start as well. Okay, so besides the Bible and Catechism, what are some introductory texts for Catholicism? That's why I printed this. This is meant to be an introductory text besides the Bible and Catechism. Link is in description. Uh, who wrote good stuff uh, responding to Francis Turretin? Um, so Francis Turretin wasn't really a main point of attack, uh, for the Catholics, uh, really when you read later Catholic theologians, the reform, well, the Protestant scholastic that they are reading is Gearhart. Um, so you'll see, um, who, who have I read? I've read a lot of authors mentioning Gearhart. Um, I've read Franzelin, uh, because he's German. He mentions Gearhart. I've read Schieben mentioned Gearhart. Yeah. Gearhart is really the guy that they mention. But really, after the first and second generation, um, the Protestant theologians became kind of irrelevant to, to Catholic theologians. So they didn't really even bother responding. Um, so, yeah, that, that's that's all of my my reformed. Um, Septuagint primacy. Let's go. Hassan's triggered right now. Yeah, you don't even agree with Septuagint primacy. I know I don't. It's better. It's better to have the Septuagint as, as having primacy over the Masoretic. But you know, the places the places where the Vulgate concurs with the Masoretic over the LXX kind of show that the uh, we should take the Vulgate over the Septuagint because the oh. Septuagint was only one source, and there were various other Greek and Semitic sources for the Old Testament before Christ. Uh, and uh, the St. Jerome and the Latin Church in general with the Sixty Clementine 
have always uh, kind of attempted to come together to produce something critical uh, in Latin from the various texts. So I'm not going to take one particular source of text from before Christ and say, this is it, this is the one. Oh, yeah. Um, so the basically the whole like Second Temple Judaism works the law thing. That's like so there's this there's this Protestant theologian named N.T. Wright. And this dude named N.T. Wright, he made he basically made that whole argument uh, more popular, um, which I'm not a I'm not a biblical theologian. Uh, so I can't explain to you in detail uh, what's going on there. But basically, it's wrong. Chad, yes, it's wrong. Masoretic fail. So true. So true. Yeah, the Masoretic is, is not good, but there are places in the Masoretic where it has some, it, it succeeds over the, the Septuagint in a few places in the Old Testament. Yeah, St. Justin read... Martyr does this, St. Irenaeus does this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they did mess up the text on purpose. But that's not that's not enough to say the text is useless. Okay, somebody's asking about uh, beauty. Um, if you check out, um, let me see. Sorry, I won't. I, I don't. I don't have it in my brain right now to answer this question uh, on stream. But I can give you a recommendation. Um, so if you go to Saint Thomas's commentary on Dionysius, let me see where it is. His Dionysius is on Divine Names, Chapter 4. I was just reading about this, actually. Um, lectures, really, 5 through 8 of Chapter 4 um, is really, really good in this regard, where he explains how the divine beauty relates to certain creative beauties. Um, yeah, but sorry, I don't have it in my brain right now to answer. Give me one second. Oh, look who joined me. Look who joined me. So true. So true. Oh, hello. Hello. Do you have anything to say? She every time, every time she like she looks at the crucifix. Um it's so over. Yeah, I know. I, I know I promised to answer it today. I just don't have it in me. <laughs> Um, do I have another start question? I do. Um, can Miser Eckhart's writings be reconciled with the condemnations against him and the church's teaching? That's a difficult one. Uh, I, so I have read, um, some of Miser Eckhart. Um, I read his, I can't remember. I read some of him like three years ago for a class. And then I read some of him like a month ago. I read his sermon on detachment. Really, really good. But yeah, Miser Eckhart, his issues were kind of twofold. So one of his issues had to do with the distinctions found in God. Um, big issue. Actually, I think a lot of uh, 
Thomists are neo-Eckhartians when it comes to this. Because Eckhart said that there's absolutely no way in which we can speak of a distinction uh, being found in the divinity at all. And all of the distinctions are merely nominal. Um, that's an error that was condemned. Uh, Eckhart couldn't hold it. Um, and then on the other hand, he had some weird sort of beliefs when it came to the divinization of the soul and the sort of level of union that took place between the between the soul and God. I'm trying to stand up. I think you are trying to stand up. Um, but yeah, that is... You're getting called my wires, man. But yeah, the, I, I don't think Eckhart could be reconciled with the teaching of the church. And I really have an issue with, um, with like, saying that all like nearly every single figure ever condemned by the church was somehow like misunderstood. Seems like a popular sort of line for people. That child is adorable. Uh, it's all yeah. I, like look at the amount of hair she has. Look at that man. Uh, Thomas Joseph White. Uh, has a seven-minute YouTube video on the fifth way. Darwinian evolution is an oxymoron to evil implies uh, teleology, and to deny it is theoretically. They've never addressed this. Yeah, I I think one of the yeah. least interesting debates ever to exist is the debate about theistic evolution. I would rather, like, do hard labor on the side of a Georgia highway with a prison crew um, for a month straight than ever, like, read a book about the uh, theistic evolution debate. It is so incredibly boring, and I'm so incredibly uninterested in ever addressing it. Sorry, man. I think we already, uh, we already addressed this. With the recent canonization of the Coptic, they, they, one, they weren't canonized. They were placed on the martyrology, which is a big difference. These canonizations are infallible. Uh, with the recent canonization of Coptic Orthodox martyrs and also Coptic Orthodox saying mass and honoring Dioscorus in Rome recently, uh, what implications does this have for the state of extra ecclesium and Salus uh, today? It, um, we already went over this, but in, in like sort of summary form, uh, when it comes to uh, the Coptic martyrs, they were not canonized. They were placed on the martyrology, which is a huge difference. The martyrology is just like, we remember people who have died for faith. Um, and actually, the martyrology having non-Catholics on it is something which is a pre-Vatican II practice. And I, I pulled up actually a quote um, from the one promulgated under Pius XII, who mentions also all of those outside of the church who have died for the faith. Um, so it, it's not like really the whole canonization of Coptic martyrs is, is nothing for me. I don't I don't really know about the uh, the Coptic Orthodox saying mass. Do you have anything to, to think about that, Hassan? Say the last part again, the mass that was done in the Vatican. Yeah. Yeah, I think that shouldn't have happened. Even though like technically the mutual excommunications are gone and whatever, it's still like you shouldn't have people who are like not recognized by any any church in communion in full communion with Rome being venerated at the altar. That's that's not good at all. So Especially what does it mean that the that the mutual yeah. that the mutual um excommunications were lifted? Mm -hmm. Like what does that even like mean? Is that kind of just like a show showy thing? Yeah, basically, because the excommunications in the first place were 
they were only really against the individuals who actually did the actions. People who merely inherited the schism were in a different circumstance, which is, yeah. we've read about this, right? And uh, mm. a bunch of the early modern theologians and the post-Reformation theologians talked about how um, jurisdiction was given in a, as mercy to the Eastern bishops, because otherwise their priests wouldn't be able to validly confirm and then their orders would be in question in future generations because you would have a bunch of invalidly confirmed people receiving holy orders. And then there would be, there was a dubiousness then as to the validity of those orders. Mm -hmm. We didn't want that situation to prevail. So the, so the Roman pontiffs gave a sort of like uh, blanket, blanket allowance, basically. Yeah, exactly. St. Alfonso. Yeah, sa about same thing for, there. same thing for their confessions. Yeah. Their yeah. confessions were basically just uh, supplied. The jurisdiction was basically like completely supplied. Um, oh, we've got a great question from uh, Saudi Arabian friend. Oh, I do. Is mm -hmm. it about? Is it about my child? What does it mean to say that man will be angelic after the resurrection? Uh, oh, and if that's oh, the you case, hit your head. She's like slamming her head against my jaw. Oh, <laughs> she's <laughs> doing all right, isn't she? Look at that. Yeah, she's doing fine. She doesn't even have a nook. She doesn't even have a nook, man. Not a peep. She uh, looks a lot like you. She does. You think Augustine looks mm. like scarily like me, although he's he's too old now to like post pictures of him online. She's still she's still a little one, so I can I can do it. Yeah, I think she looks like me. She looks. I, I think I think she looks a lot more like my wife. Which yeah, I don't really. She, you can tell she's your daughter though. So true. Oh oh, thank you, Hassan. <laughs> thank you yeah. for letting me know. <laughs> Okay, so oh, bro, Hassan. Why would you interpret it that way? That sounds terrible. <laughs> that's usually that's usually how people <laughs> interpret that that statement. You uh... tell she's your daughter. Okay, so what's the wisdom uh, in the general resurrection being physical rather than spiritual? If Christ says you'll be like angels. Okay, so the reason that okay, so if we think about the three the three. Uh, manners in which are uh, not the three objects of god's creation i guess would be the best way of putting it uh saint thomas uh will order his, his things like this first you have the spiritual creation the spiritual creation is the is the angels the angels they uh do not have matter um, they're only a composition of essence and existence um with on the other hand you have corporeal creatures corporeal creatures are completely material and on the third, you have a mixed creature. And the mixed creature has an immaterial form, but, in, but still has matter. And this is man. So since there is such an intimate relationship between matter and form, uh, there, there needs to, for the beatitude of man, uh, be this uh, glorification not only of our souls, but also our bodies. So our souls are glorified. And then from that overflowing of glory, uh, there are certain um, benefits to the body, like clarity and agility are, are spoken of, um, and incorruptibility. So uh, there, there's this overflow from the soul to the body, to which we have a we have a sort of mixed beatitude, if you want to put it like that, because our souls are ordered towards our bodies and our bodies are ordered towards our souls. It would be like having, um, for example, like, uh, nah, that's not a good example. I'm not going to give an example. I, I think that's that's enough. So when when we're said to be like the angels, um, the angels are in a position of beatitude right now. 
and the angels don't have material attachments uh, right now. So for us in the resurrection, we are going to be in a similar state to the angels in that we are going to have um, this sort of beatitude and purity in which the angels have without any sort of the uh, material attachments that we have. And we're going to be wrapped in contemplation of God. So that's what it means to be like the angels. Um, it's not like we're just going to have some sort of like spiritual uh, resurrection without a physical resurrection. Anything to say, Hassan? You said it was a great um, question. I would refer it back to what we've been talking about with reference to like why St. Thomas is called the angelic doctor as well. Right. He is distracted by the baby. They have, they have insane core strength. Yeah. I would never be able to do that. You had insane core strength on you. Hey, continue, continue talking. I'm, I'm listening. I'm listening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so basically, uh, when we when we talk about like being as angels, we mean uh, basically living with the with reason's full power over uh, over the matter. Because when angels act upon matter, they act with sort of like uh, uh, in such a manner as the power exerts no influence over the mind, right? So this is one of the reasons why we reject the idea that angels experience lust and then uh, slept with human women to produce the Nephilim, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, angels don't have bodies united to their nature. So they don't experience any kind of uh, passions in the soul at all, right? But it's different, it's different for us because we, um, we do experience passions in the soul, but the mind, uh, the mind because of certain virtues is able to act uh, in accordance with those passions, only in accordance with itself. Uh, and this is freedom from enslavement to the passions that St. Paul talks about. So this is the, the angelic state that we come to. Since Christian's gone, I'm going to briefly read you something that, uh, that uh, St. Thomas says. Well, he takes from St. Jerome explaining why Gabriel was sent to Mary, which... Uh, for you, since you're Muslim, you're going to agree that this is what happened. Uh, why? Why was an angel sent to her? Why didn't she speak immediate? Why didn't God immediately infuse the ideas into her into her mind? Why didn't he experience? Why didn't she experience the voice as when Moses did from a burning bush or something like that? Why did an angel come to her in the shape of a man speak to her? Saint Thomas says. something very interesting here so this is in um the summa theologiae book three question 30 article two response uh, objection four and its response greater things ought to be announced by messengers of greater dignity the mystery of the incarnation is the greatest of all things announced by angels to men it seems therefore if it behooved to be announced by an angel at all that this should have been done by an angel of the highest order but gabriel is not of the highest order but the order of archangels which is the last but one. Wherefore the church sings, we know that the archangel Gabriel brought thee a message from God. Therefore this announcement was not becomingly made by the archangel Gabriel. Here's the response. 
it was fitting for the mystery of the incarnation to be announced to the mother of God by an angel for three reasons. First, that in this also might be maintained the order established by God by which divine things are brought to men by the means of angels. Wherefore, Dionysius says in Celestial Hierarchy that the angels were the first to be taught the divine mystery of the love and kindness of Christ. Afterwards, the grace of knowledge was imparted to us through them. Thus then, the most godlike, Divinissimus, Gabriel, made known to Zacharias that a prophet's son would be born to him, and to Mary, how the divine mystery of the ineffable conception of God would be realized in her. Uh, just a note here, it's quite interesting how Surah Maryam has the same structure in its narrative of the Annunciation. First, it deals with Zechariah and his Annunciation before the conception of John the Baptist, and then it shifts to the Marian narrative. This was becoming to the restoration of human nature, which was to be affected by Christ. This is the second point. Wherefore, Beda Venerabilis says in a homily on the Annunciation, it was an apt beginning of man's restoration that an angel should be sent by God to the Virgin, who was to be hallowed by the divine birth. Since the first cause of man's ruin was through the serpent being sent by the devil to cajole a woman by the spirit of pride. So this is a, a Mary as co-reparatrix here, because if the reparation of the, recapit the recapitulation and correction of Adam's failure in the garden uh, was going to involve a correction of Eve's failure in the garden, then Eve's failure being affected by the cajoling of an angelic spirit, uh, the devil, through the, the created form of the serpent, then likewise it would make sense that the created form, not of a serpent, not of a beast, which was what man was being dragged down to become, which is why we became the seed of the serpent, uh, but of a man should be sent. So an angelic spirit, again, an angelic spirit should be the one who announces to the woman her own task, and she would succeed rather than fail in it. And third, this is the most important part. This was becoming to the virginity of the mother of God. Wherefore, Jerome says in a sermon on the Assumption, it is well that an angel be sent to the virgin because virginity is ever akin to the angelic nature. Surely to live in the flesh and not according to the flesh is not an earthly but a heavenly life. And this is what I was saying. To live in the flesh but not according to the flesh that is, to live in the flesh, but according to mind. And that is the angelic state. And this is why Christ says they will be like angels, which is why they will not marry. Because there will be no need, further need for propagation of further individuals of the species. There will be no need for accomplishing a deeper union through immediate participation in God, because we will all have an immediate principle of unity in the beatific vision. And third, because there will be no need to uh, to remedy concupiscence because the disorderedness of concupiscence, the disharmony of concupiscence will have been solved in the recreation of our bodies in the resurrection. He also says, some say that Gabriel was of the highest order because Gregory says in his homily on the hundred sheep that it was right that one of the highest angels should come since his message was most sublime. But this, in fact, does not imply that he was of the highest order at all, but in regard only to the angels, since he was an archangel. 
and thus the church calls him an archangel. And Gabriel and Gregory himself says in a homily, the same homily, uh, those are called archangels who would announce sublime things. And it is therefore sufficiently credible that he was the highest of the archangels. And as Gregory says in the same homily, this name agrees with his office, for Gabriel means the power of God. And this message therefore was fittingly brought by the power of God, because the Lord of hosts, mighty in battle, was coming to overcome the aerial powers. So uh, I hope that helps to explain why we, why we hold and in what sense we hold that we will be living an angelic life in, uh, in beatitude after the resurrection. Yeah, somebody made a comment, which I just wanted to make sure I corrected, even though, I, I again, I really don't care about the evolution debate. Uh, somebody said, uh, I think it's ridiculous to suppose that substances can be created anew, even though the potency for the new form is not present in it. Actually, Saint, this is this is a Franciscan belief that you're putting forward. Um, yeah. Saint Thomas, Saint Thomas thinks that there is a, um, for example, right here in Question 45, Article 8 of uh, Prima Pars, the doubt on this subject arises from the forms which some said do not come into existence by the action of nature, but previously existed in matter, for they asserted that forms are latent. This arose from ignorance concerning matter and from not knowing how to distinguish between potentiality and act. For because forms pre-exist in matter, in potentiality, they existed that they pre-exist simply. Uh, others, however, said that the forms were given or caused by a separate agent by way of creation, and accordingly, that to each operation of nature is joined creation. But this opinion arose from ignorance concerning form, for they failed to consider that the form of the natural body is not subsisting, but is that by which a thing is. And therefore, since it is uh, to be made and to be created, belong properly to a subsisting thing alone as shown above it does not belong to forms to be made or created but to be con created this is really important same thing with accidents uh what indeed is properly made by the natural agent is the composite which is made from matter hence in the works of uh, nature creation does not enter but is presupposed uh to the work of nature so saint thomas um seeing where he makes it a little clear but there's these uh, these so-called like seeds which are present in um, forms which are able to uh, allow for like substantial transformation, um, yeah, and these seeds are uh, are rooted in um, the matter of the thing. So I don't so I don't think that's like a good argument against. It. I don't like. Um, I, I know I'm going to get hate <coughs> some of Father Ripiger's arguments um, against evolution, which is why I, I just don't like this debate at all. Um, okay, I'm I'm at the bottom. Somebody's asking how I like my eggs. Um, What's your favorite way of making eggs? Scrambled, poached, omelet, sunny side up. Such a difficult question, guys. Um, so you take those eggs, scramble them up, put some brown sugar, cinnamon, vanilla, get some thick pieces of bread, soak that bread, Put that baby on a grill with some butter on it. Oh, griddle with butter on it. Flip. Boom. Uh, cut up. 
syrup French toast. That's how I like my eggs. Um, if I get the $5 tier on your Patreon, will I get the books that you have on Amazon and PDF? Some of them. Some of them I have up there. Some of them I kind of just like forgot about and I can't find the PDFs anymore. Yeah, I can post. I guess I can post like the Copens one um, on Patreon. Just like usually, usually I forget about it until somebody like actually wants it. So they just message me on Patreon and then I put it up. Which ones? I don't know off the top of my head. Um, which ones do you want? I can give you basically any one. Uh, sunny side up. No, I I don't like sunny side up because sometimes the whites don't cook enough, dude. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous position you're holding, Jack. Father Copens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have the I, I made sure I saved the PDF for this one. So you'll get like everything from this. Yeah. Uh development of doctrine. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think I I think I already posted the PDF on there of development of doctrine. Do do I like anime? Um I would rather uh take you know the um you know what an auger is? an auger you like to try to try to like get get like a hole in ice like that kind of auger i'd rather take an auger put my foot down and then auger through my foot than watch anime if that uh if that lets you know how much anime i watch and then i'd rather get like a lemon and just squeeze it over the auger wound that's what i would rather do than watch anime sorry guys Do I have any other questions of importance? Suma of us go to Suma. Uh, yes, yes, I do have the PDF. I remember I sent it to Hassan. Uh, thoughts on Mary's revelations in Medjugorje. What is this place, Hassan? Fake. It's, it's fake. fake. Medjugorje. Yeah. All fake. Yeah, I don't really. Um, Yeah, I don't really usually pay attention to like many Marian apparitions. Sorry, guys, that's just not what I'm interested in. I know some people have like a, a very strong like obsession. I've just I've just never felt like outside of like Fatima. Like, yeah, I know about Fatima. Outside of Fatima, I just never really, never really uh, cared too much about Marian apparitions. Because what what you have what you have as well is like assuming assuming uh, which I do assume for most for many of the cases, uh, especially like something where we have a universal feast like Our Lady of Guadalupe or Our Lady of Fatima, um, assuming that we do have this completely uh, true apparition, um, one, the apparition isn't universally binding. And two, the author, or at least the person who saw the apparition is now telling people about it, is not uh, protected from error in their reporting. And a lot of times you have some people who just aren't, um, I guess not educated isn't the right word, but aren't like even, even like basic, basic catechesis isn't just there. So they say some really weird stuff when they're trying to express what was told to them. 
and it can be uh, very misleading. So, I mean, there's like the general, the, the general sort of like commands, do penance, pray your rosary, so on and so forth, like certain devotional stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, I think that those parts are fine. But then you have the people who try to read this, like actually like get their theology out of it. And that's just not, um, that, that's not really a safe thing to do. Unless, of course, the church has um, at least marked it with their approval that there's nothing unsafe there, like she did with uh, Fatima. Oh, I've never read anything by G.K. Chesterton, nor will I. So real. I read I read the Orthodoxy and the Ballad of the White Stag. I think it's called. Uh, I think there's there's some interesting stuff there. But once you've once you've like read what he said in his book about Saint Thomas, it's just over. You just know that he you just know that he's waffling almost all the time. He's good at waffling, but it's waffling. Yeah, he just like made stuff up. He literally like people, actual nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. People like, like it's that one. Remember that one? Uh, she, she's a servant of God. Um, she was like one of, she was close with Von Balthazar and she had this like apparent um, like experience with St. Thomas and St. Mm -hmm. Thomas is like lamenting the fact that he didn't like pray enough and he spent too much time studying. I was like, oh, what? Do you know yeah, anything about the life of St. Thomas? Like the, the, literally the basics about the yeah, life yeah. of St. Thomas. Adrian, Adrian von Speer. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Terrible. stuff like that is just horrible. It's like, especially like any, any saint, like who's going to become a saint without having, without praying. Like, that's just ridiculous. Uh, do I like Seinfeld? Uh, yes, I actually do. Big Bang Theory, no. How I Met Your Mother, no. Uh, do I skateboard when I was younger? No. Uh, somebody asked a question I actually wanted to... Yeah, yeah. The, um, the Basically, the story behind his whole thing on um, uh, St. Thomas was he basically just like <laughs> went to went to like the library and picked up like three books and kind of gazed through them and then just wrote a book on somebody. It's like, what? This is apparently supposed to be like your gold standard for learning about the life of St. Thomas. That's what some people treat. It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. Okay. What do you, okay. I have to go in one minute, but before I go, uh, do not forget to look below. Remember development of doctrine. Some of us go to summa. Good stuff. And also Patreon, patreon.com slash militant to help me continue doing what I'm doing. So I will answer one more question. Better be a good one. I'm going to give you guys, I'm going to give you guys like, I don't know, 90, 90 seconds. You have 90 seconds to ask a question and I will answer it. Any question. What is life of St. Francis? I mean, it's like, why? Why not? Why not read? Uh... Where is it? Where in the heck is it? If you want to read about the life of Saint Francis, they've already got like million texts from closer to the time. Just read those. Did I put it right there? That's where I put it.
Just read up. Uh, just read St. Bonaventure's Life of St. Francis. I mean, it's not long. It's like 160 pages. It's from close to the time of St. Francis. I mean, it's from a saint as well. So it's like, why why would you read like G.K. Chesterton's Life of St. Francis? Just read just read St. Bonaventure. Uh, I actually I'll get all I'll get all of my VT books. Um, Autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. Um, Life of St. Catherine of Siena by her confessor, who's a blessed. There's, there's a lot of good ones. Um, this this uh, collection by by Penguin of early Christian lives. This is pretty good. It has like the life of St. Anthony, uh, the life of Hilarion by Jerome. Uh, what else? They have like the life of St. Benedict by Pope St. Gregory. This is like a really good collection. And Life of St. Thomas Aquinas, obviously. I have, there's a good one. Uh, it's in it's in the living room right now because I was reading it last night. There's a good Life of St. Vincent uh, Ferrer that Tan has. It's actually like in the traditional Vita form. Yeah, but reading about the lives of the saints is important, guys. Don't get bad books. Okay, so let me see. Are any are any questions worth answering asked? Okay, so the first question is if Aquinas was never born, how would the church look like today? Uh the second question is thoughts on integralism. The third one is does Christ being present in us through the Holy Spirit, as Saint Cyril testifies, imply the procession of the Spirit from the Son? And the okay, the, those are the three questions. I will answer. Return to monkey. Does Christ being present in us through the Holy Spirit, as Saint Cyril testifies, imply the procession of the Spirit from the Son? Um, I am assuming you meant the other way around. Does the Holy Spirit being pre uh, being present in us from Christ? As Saint Cyril testifies, imply the procession of the Spirit from the Son. Uh, he talks about this in his commentary on the Gospel of John, and then also his Thesaurus. Um, then, like a bunch of other scattered uh, places. So, yes, it does imply that um, because when we look at the the missions, the temporal missions reflect eternal realities. Because otherwise, what the issue with this would be would be otherwise we wouldn't be able to really know anything about the Trinity. Um, if we were blankly uh, stated eternal realities without any sort of reference to the temporal. This is why the son's called son and the father's called father. Uh, it's it's uh, using temporal realities to illustrate um, eternal truths, which are which are properly uh, actually properly used um, in, in a similar way. The sending of the son from the father, uh, the sending of the son from the spirit is speaking about the humanity of Christ in the reference to the incarnation. Um, the breathing, the breathing of uh, Christ on the apostles. That's another traditional text which is used to describe the procession of the Spirit. It's really, it's really just, um, it's just obvious. Uh, yeah, what you, you, you have to um, reason from the temporal to the eternal. That's just like it's, it's ridiculous because the Orthodox response is going to be like well you you can't you can't uh you're confusing the two orders and you can't um somehow 
uh, distinct. Well, you can't somehow reason from the one to the other. Well, it's like really every single text that is brought up in the New Testament talking about procession is talking about uh, some sort of temporal sending. It's just like universally agreed upon um, in, in its in in its uh, most immediate sense and immediately in, in the so-called like dogmatic sense, if you want to look within the various facets of the literal sense immediately like yes we can we can reason to the eternal procession but immediately none of those texts are signifying um somehow the eternal procession of the spirit uh, none of them are um and if you look in the immediate context of every single one of them is talking about uh, some sort of sending so yeah okay that was that was the last question Okay, I have to go to uh, I have to go to class. Oops, sorry. I got something to got something to show you later. By the way, so let me know. Okay, bye everybody. <laughs>